Blood, Sweat and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake. An astonishing true story, adultery, arson, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. It's a story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. When I was going through the thousands of newspaper clippings that had involved Vance over his four-decade-long career as a forensic scientist, I found this one that was connected to a murder case in 1931. It was torn from the pages of a newspaper called the Vancouver Star, and the headline read, Hitomi Murder Trial Continues. The date was October 23, 1931, written in Vance's own handwriting. It mentioned the murder of Naokichi Watanabe. Vance had kept the clipping because he had testified in court that blood found on the suspect's clothing was human. The clipping also mentioned the date of the murder, and something about the story sounded so interesting that I took a trip to the Vancouver Public Library and went through their newspaper morgue. As I started to dig a bit deeper, I realised that the story revolved around a house in Japantown, that the house is still there, and that the story was much more involved than this one murder. To put this all in context, the murder of 49-year-old Naokichi Watanabe took place in 1931 in Vancouver's Japantown. Today it's mentioned as the downtown east side and is often referred to as being the poorest postal code in Canada. But up until the Second World War, when the Japanese were shipped off to internment camps, mostly in the interior, more than 8,000 Japanese people lived here and many worked at the nearby Hastings Sawmill. Japantown was a thriving place full of Japanese shops, hotels, restaurants. There was a Buddhist church, a language school, and even a hugely successful baseball team called the Asashi, made up of Japanese Canadians who played on the old Powell Street grounds, which is now Oppenheimer Park. In 1931, the Depression was two years old, and it had firmly taken hold across North America. Workers had lost their jobs or had their paychecks slashed. Thousands of unemployed Canadians had travelled to the warmer climate of Vancouver in search of work, only to put more pressure on an already inadequate relief system. The size of the city's homeless grew, and hobo jungles, made up of falling down shacks and shelters, began to pop up around the city. While conditions were bad all over, they were worse for the Japanese. They were often the last to get jobs and were paid only a fraction of the social assistance given to whites. The sick and homeless had even fewer options. In the midst of all this, a 40-year-old Japanese man and sawmill worker named Shinkichi Sakurada saw a business opportunity. He turned his modest two-storey house into a private hospital and soon became known as a medicine man even though he had no medical training. His so-called hospital operated under the radar, and as the sign was in Japanese, and the patients were Japanese, the illegal hospital went undetected by police and the city health department. Sakurada, the hospital owner, had a great scam going. 
sick and destitute Japanese people who came into his hospital would take out an insurance policy naming Sakurada as their beneficiary, and shortly after, they would die. At the end of March 1931, there were four men living with a hospital owner on East Cordova Street. One of them was Naokichi Watanabe, a small man, just five foot four inches tall. Watanabe had left his wife in Japan and arrived in Canada 20 years earlier with the hopes of making his fortune through fishing and logging. It didn't work out and he'd injured his back in a workplace accident the year before, which had left him partially disabled. He met Sakurada shortly afterwards, and the hospital owner loaned Watanabe some money to tide him over until his workers' compensation money came through. Sakurada told people he did this because Watanabe was hard up and had no friends or relatives in Vancouver. But it wasn't true. Sakurada then helped Watanabe take out a life insurance policy with a Japanese insurance agent. The policy was for $2,500, and it named Sakurada, the hospital owner, as a beneficiary of the policy. Now, just to pause here for a moment, $2,500 in 1931 is worth about $40,000 today. But this was the heart of the Depression, and to give you an idea of what $2,500 looked like then, I went back through some of the classified employment and housing for sale ads in the Vancouver Sun for 1931. $2,500 would buy you a five-room bungalow in Kerrisdale, a middle-class area of Vancouver. In 1931, the annual wage of a lumber worker was $1,149. So the life insurance payout would be equivalent to almost two years of a labourer's salary. A few weeks before he was murdered, Watanabe had received a partial payment of $300 from the Workers' Compensation Board. It came with a letter that said he would receive the balance of $700 when he was back in Japan. Watanabe gave some of the money he had received from the Workers' Compensation Board to Sakurada, his landlord. He paid $90 for a ticket to return to Japan the following week. This presented a huge problem for the hospital owner, because if Watanabe was allowed to go home to Japan, Sakurada would never collect on the insurance policy. Instead of letting Watanabe, who was already quite ill, succumb to natural causes in his hospital, Sakurada had to step up his timeline. He promised a man named Fred Yoshi $1,000 of the insurance money if he would kill Watanabe and two other men who had named him as their beneficiary on their life insurance policies. Instead, Yoshi fled to Chilliwack, British Columbia. The hospital owner then approached a 48-year-old fisherman named Teodeo Hitomi. The fisherman was considered mentally challenged in the Japanese community and he owed the hospital owner and Watanabe money. Sakurada, the hospital owner, told him both debts would be forgiven and he would get some money from the insurance policy if he murdered his friend Watanabe. But before that, the hospital owner needed to set up an alibi and he chose Banshiro Fujino, a 37-year-old insurance agent who sold the life insurance policies. It was a little after 11 o'clock on the night of the murder. The insurance agent had returned home after visiting a friend. He'd just taken off his coat when there was a knock on his door and his friend Sakurada, the hospital owner, came in wearing a raincoat, carrying an umbrella and dripping water all over his floor. 
The hospital owner asked Virginia to help him look for Watanabe. He told the insurance agent that he had loaned Watanabe $30 earlier that evening. Watanabe hadn't returned and he was worried. The money was actually Watanabe's from the workers' compensation payout, but the hospital owner didn't mention that. He'd already searched for Watanabe at the Japanese bathhouse and phoned a few of his friends. No one had seen him. The hospital owner told the insurance agent that he may have gone to see a friend who lived on his gillnetter at the old Hastings Mill Wharf, and he asked him to go with him. The insurance agent reluctantly put on his damp raincoat and followed the hospital owner down to the waterfront. When they got there, the night was so dark and so wet that they couldn't tell which boat belonged to the fishermen. It was now past 1am and the insurance agent was angry and he just wanted to go home. The two men walked back along the railway tracks past a long line of freight cars. The insurance agent was walking along a steep bank when the hospital owner called out to him and pointed out a dark object lying on the CPR tracks. He lit a match and saw that it was a corpse lying face up with legs outstretched. The hospital owner took off his scarf and placed it over the badly beaten head and then covered the body with his raincoat. It's Watanabe, he told the insurance agent. The hospital owner told him that Tadeo Hitomi, the fisherman, had murdered Watanabe and that he would give Fujino, the insurance agent, some of the money from Watanabe's life insurance for his trouble. Fujino was stunned. His first thought was that Watanabe had been hit by a train. The insurance agent went to get the police while the hospital owner stayed with a body. The police station was only about six blocks away from the murder site and he returned quite quickly with Detectives Spence and Dugan. The detectives got out of the car and started to look around. It was still raining heavily and they couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of them. Dugan had brought a large flashlight and saw what appeared to be a man rising up from the ground and holding an umbrella. He went over to the man and saw the body of Watanabe. When Dugan lifted up the scarf, he saw that the man's throat had been cut and he could see that part of the bone in his chin was missing. One ear was almost severed and there was a stab wound in the middle of his forehead. The right side of his head was bashed in where it had been pounded by something heavy like an axe. Detective Dugan searched the body and found all the pockets empty except for $3.85, which was stuffed in a small pocket at the top of Watanabe's pants. The coroner's inquest into the death of Watanabe took place just two days after his body was found. The six-person jury was all white and all male and consisted of a clerk who became foreman, an engineer, a logger, two bricklayers and a cook. They were taken to look at the body, sat through a lot of graphic medical testimony and listened to the Japanese witnesses through the police department's interpreter. They heard the testimony from both detectives. Sakurada, the hospital owner, admitted that he was the beneficiary on Watanabe's life insurance policy. He was designated as Watanabe's nephew on his policy, but admitted that they were not related. Watanabe was paying the monthly premiums, he said, and Fujina was the insurance agent who sold him the policy. Watanabe had not paid any board for his stay in the hospital. The jury's findings were that Watanabe came to his death on or about March 30, 1931, on the CPR right-of-way as a result of injuries inflicted on him by some person or persons unknown. The next day, police raided Sakurada's hospital and found a stethoscope, a blood pressure detector, 
several hypodermic syringes, absorbent cotton and bottles containing cocaine and morphine. They also found another very sick man in a cot who told them through an interpreter that he had shared the room with Watanabe. He told them that he'd come to the hospital a month before for treatment for his cough and said his condition worsened after he was given an injection. Police arrested Sakurada, the hospital owner, Vegina, the insurance agent, and Hitomi, the fisherman. While Detective Dugan was questioning the fisherman, he noticed something sticking out from under the man's cap. He found a note with Japanese characters, which when he had translated, read, White police suspect me of murdering Watanabe. I have disgraced the Japanese community. I will die. I will kill myself. When Dugan searched the fisherman, he found a linen sheet tied around his waist, and he thought that the man intended to hang himself. The fisherman quickly broke down under questioning and told police that he had owed both Watanabe and Sakurada money. Sakurada had promised him he wouldn't have to pay his debts, and he would also get a share of the insurance money as payment for killing his friend. The original plan was to poison Watanabe at the hospital so it would look like an accident. But Watanabe's departure back to Japan was imminent and poisoning would take too long. At his trial, Hitomi the fisherman said that Sakurada had given him a small surgical knife, but he told him it wouldn't do, that he'd borrow a hatchet from his neighbour. He and Sakurada had then walked along the railway tracks and decided on the spot where the murder would take place later that night. Around 8 o'clock, he and Sakurada had taken Watanabe for a walk down the CPR tracks below Heatley Street. The hospital owner engaged Watanabe in conversation while the fisherman brought out a hatchet that he had hidden in his coat pocket and got behind Watanabe and hit him twice on the neck. Watanabe fought back and Sakurada grabbed his arms. Hitomi's confession was recorded in the newspaper and just a warning that it's quite gruesome. Also, keep in mind that he didn't speak or understand any English and he was speaking through a court-appointed interpreter. This is the translation. We took Watanabe for a walk. He was sick and could hardly walk. I suggested that I go ahead to near the American Can Company and Watanabe and Sakurada would follow. I went down to the track and waited and finally met the two and the three of us went down the track. We talked, and while we were talking, Sakurada pulled my coat and said, Go ahead, quick. I struck Watanabe with the hatchet, but was not strong enough to strike him down, and Watanabe attacked me. I asked Sakurada to help me, because although Watanabe was suffering, he was still strong. I attacked again and finally beat him down to the ground. Sakurada was standing about six feet away and said, You'll have to cut his throat. I kept my eyes shut and struck with the hatchet. I do not hit his throat, but chop through his chin. I strike again with my eyes shut, and it is done. Hitomi the fisherman said Sakurada gave him $10 after the murder. When detectives went to the fisherman's home, they found several suspicious-looking stains. More marks that looked like blood stains were found on two stoves. These and the ashes and clothes were taken to city analyst John Vance to examine. Several witnesses said they either saw Hitomi trying to burn his clothes in a stove in his room or smelled something odd coming from the room. The Japanese man who lived next door to him told police that he had loaned him the hatchet. The fisherman told police that he'd put the hatchet that he'd used to kill Watanabe 
as well as the bloody clothing that he couldn't burn in the stoves, into a large tin can and tossed everything into a mud hole at the foot of Heatley Street. As news of Watanabe's murder and Sakurada's private hospital spread, other Japanese people came forward with stories of suspicious circumstances surrounding the deaths of friends and relatives who had stayed in Sakurada's private hospital. One Japanese man told them that two of his children had died after being treated for jaundice at Sakurada's hospital six months before Watanabe's murder. Both his 16-year-old daughter and her 15-year-old brother had insurance policies on their lives. Another Japanese family had been told a relative who stayed at the hospital died from tuberculosis. Insurance company representatives told police that as many as 20 Japanese citizens had died supposedly from natural deaths during the past couple of years and they'd been insured through Fujina and in a few cases named Sakurada as a beneficiary. The Vancouver Sun reported that police were chasing down leads about the other beneficiaries and suspected that there were wider ramifications to the plot. Police began calling Sakurada's six-room house a murder factory. The Vancouver Sun came out with a front-page story headlined Score of Japanese feared slain in wholesale death scheme. Bodies likely to be exhumed. The story went... With the finding of blood-stained clothing and a hatchet crammed into a huge canister at the bottom of a pool in False Creek, developments of a sensational nature which may reveal the ramifications of a wholesale Japanese murder plot are indicated in the investigation of the murder of Naokichi Watanabe. The Globe and Mail reported that police suspected an organised assassination ring was operating in Japantown. Hitomi the fisherman and Sakurada the hospital owner were each tried separately for capital murder. If convicted, they would receive the death penalty. Sakurada testified at his trial that he didn't know that Hitomi the fisherman had planned to murder their friend Watanabe. He had just happened to come across Hitomi, who was standing over the body. Sakurada was too scared to say anything because Hitomi had threatened to kill him if he talked. He said Hitomi had then robbed him of $10. What I find really interesting about all this is that none of these Japanese men spoke or understood English. The police got all their information from the two Japanese interpreters who were paid by the police department. It was never clear to me how sick Japanese people were able to get coverage, let alone a payout of $2,500 without a proper medical examination. And what I also don't get is how these mostly destitute Japanese people found the money to pay the premiums in the middle of the Depression. Even though Hitomi the fisherman was considered simple or mentally challenged in the Japanese community, his lawyer didn't even bother to offer a defence. He just told the jury that the police had got his confession under less than ideal circumstances and it shouldn't be admitted into evidence. Hitomi was on the stand for more than three hours, and he appeared to be in a fog through most of it. Even the judge was disturbed and recommended that he be examined because he just didn't seem to be in a fit mental condition. The prosecutor said that had been done, but no details were given, and it's unlikely he was tested very thoroughly, because if it had been done at all, it would have all gone through an interpreter. The most sensational evidence came from Fred Yoshi, the Japanese hitman. 
Yoshi told them that Sakurada, the hospital owner, had asked him to murder Watanabe and two others whose lives had been insured. Instead of carrying out the murders, Yoshi said he'd taken the money and fled. Fujino, the insurance agent, was released from jail and his case never went to trial. He later sued the Japanese newspaper for libel and he won. Police Chief William Bingham told reporters that he would petition the Attorney General to exhume up to 20 bodies and see if they'd been poisoned. As city analyst, it would have been Vance's job to examine the organs for poison. There's nothing mentioned in the Vancouver Police Department report for 1931 or in Vance's own files. It appears that Vance's job was just to test the drugs that were confiscated from Sakurada's private hospital and find out if the stains found on Hitomi's clothing were human blood. This sounds ridiculously easy in the days of DNA, but back then, testing blood was a really complicated process and involved a number of tests just to find out if it was human blood and not, say, animal, ketchup, or even red ink for that matter. The headlines and stories disappeared quite quickly after the two trials, except for one short article in the Vancouver Sun. It mentioned that Chief Bingham had decided not to go through with the exhumation of the bodies. There was no explanation why, except that the reporter noted that Bingham was desperately fighting to save his own job. Another thing that was really interesting was that Sakurada was not the only beneficiary named on these insurance policies, but no other names were ever released, let alone charged. The racism against the Japanese people is well documented, and they would have been easy to blame for the murder factory. I believe that there were players in this that went much higher up the criminal food chain than Sakurada, the hospital owner. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was a cover-up in the police department and Sakurada and the mentally challenged Totomi were the two scapegoats in all of this. These problems were quickly solved when Sakurada, the hospital owner, and Hitomi, the fisherman, were found guilty of murder and hung together at Okala Prison Farm on December 30, 1931. They were the 53rd and 54th hanging carried out in British Columbia since 1863. Chief Bingham, who had fought so hard to hold on to his job, was replaced by the end of that year anyway. There was no mention in the newspapers or in the Vancouver Police Department's annual reports of any attempt to find out who else was involved in the insurance fraud and the murder factory. Thanks so much for joining me. If you'd like to read more about Inspector Vance and these amazing crimes he worked on, there's a link to all my true crime books on my website, evelazarus.com, 